This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me today at the Bioceuticals 2015 Symposium is Dr. Nils Wem. Some people would say Wem <laughs> um, from Norway, yep. uh, who is a PhD pharmacist and who works as chief scientist with Acabio Marine, the ma- one of the major suppliers of krill oil supplements around the world. Welcome, Nils. Thank you. So, Nils, I've got many questions for you because your talk was riveting, I've got to say, and I, I haven't been a little bit sceptical, but uh, a supporter of krill oil in a, in a certain, dare I say, box, um, which... I think requires some discussion, but I think we need to first go back to the differences, molecular differences between fish oil and krill oil. So can I ask you to give us a brief explanation? What do, what do you see as the major differences? Well, the major differences are actually quite straightforward. Um, there are two major classes of what we call glycerolipids. Um, the one class is what most people think of as fat or oils. You find them in olive oil or in fish oil or in any type of oil. Mm. And that is what we call triglycerides. And this is a type of molecule that is completely hydrophobic. It doesn't like water. And that's one of the reasons why they are so valuable for our bodies, because we can store energy without having to bind a lot of water. Um, the other class um, is something called phospholipids. And the phospholipids have a completely different function in our body. Uh, they share chemical similarities with the triglycerides, uh, but the way they come out physicochemically is that they have a huge polar head and then they have non-polar tails. And this makes them spontaneously form layers or sheets. And that's exactly why they actually are the wrapping of all cells. That's what cells, the surface of a cell is made of. Mm -hmm. And all organelles in a cell is made of these phospholipids. And krill oil contain uh, a fair amount of, let's say, uh, 50-50 triglycerides and phospholipids, but um, and usually most of the long-chain omega-3s, that is EPA and DHA, are bound to the phospholipids. Right. Not in the triglycerides. Not form. in. A little bit in the triglycerides. About 70% in the phospholipids and give or take 30% in the and triglycerides. And the makeup of these phospholipids? The, the, in krill oil, it is very specific. Um, it is um, not exclusively, but 90% of them would be a molecule called phosphatidylcholine which is one of the two major phospholipids in our cell membranes. And then there is something called phosphatidylethanolamine. Yeah. Uh, that, these are the two. And that's quite specific for krill and some other uh, 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 seed-living organisms that they prefer the phosphatidylcholine form. Right. What about the phosphatidylserine form? I'm, I'm interested here in blood-brain barrier. There is no phosphatidylserine is non-existent or almost non-existent in krill oil. Um, the blood-brain barrier question is quite interesting because the ethan- ethanolamine can cross, right? No, it is actually ah. lysophosphatidylcholine that crosses the, 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 the blood-brain barrier. Forgive me, which one is it? The lysophosphatidylcholine. Yes, that crosses the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, oh, that's interesting to me. Well, that is, um, I wouldn't say it came as a surprise. There are research from a French group, uh, Lagarde, 
and co-workers that suggested years ago that there has to be a active transport of fats mm. into the brain and in particular EPA and DHA and then DHA is the major one in yep. the brain. Uh, the role of EPA is actually somewhat st or still somewhat uh, controversial in brain. Um, but they suggested that the transport into brain was exactly as lysophosphatidylcholine. Uh, lysophosphatidylcholine is phosphatidylcholine with only one fatty acid. Uh, it can be in either of the two positions, um, but that fatty acid then is the one the fatty acid brought into the brain. And um, recently, that is uh, in May last year, uh, there was a letter to Nature uh, from a group headed by by David Silver at uh, the University of Singapore, yeah. uh, the Duke Medical School. Uh, published a uh, fantastic paper where they showed for the first time and actually both defined and proved that the transport into the brain is via lysophosphatidyl uh, choline and that there is a specific uh, uh, transporter called MFSD2A. Now, can you explain a little bit about what that is, please? Because that was a really interesting, but I didn't really catch it in the What in it the means talk. is that for these fats to cross the blood-brain barrier, it has to be take ferried over. And this molecule binds the lysophosphatidylcholine with the fatty acid on, and then brings it in actively into the brain. So it is on a full control of our bodies. So that means that it would only let in what it uh, should let in, and, and it would do so um, according to specific affinities between the, uh, the molecule and the transporter. The transporter sits at a microvasculature uh, um, uh, between uh, or in, in the brain, yeah. and um, then in many respects defines the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. This is actually what the blood-brain barrier is all about. So, yeah. uh, uh, forgive me, are you saying that, that, that it's concentrated around the, like the third ventricle? That well, there are concentrations around the third, third ventricle. This is actually at the at the at the interface of the cerebral uh, circulation right. and the and the um, the systemic circulation. But um, they did a beautiful piece of work where they showed this in mice. Then they identified mutations in the, in the mice genome to knock out the um, the expression of this particular uh, transporter. They showed that the transporter sits where it sits, exactly uh, in what would anatomically be defined as the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. um, and they showed the effects of not having that um, uh, transporter in, um, in a fetus. And that was quite dramatic. So does that explain the uh, much more permeable blood-brain barrier in infants and indeed elderly? No, not really. Uh, it no, it, it does not. But it it actually defines a major constituent of the blood and brain barrier. Yeah. But in in these, um, this is not in infants. These are in in the fetus. Um, then they need to be able to transport those fats into the brain at a very high rate because the brain is a large proportion for as a large proportion fat. And without this transporter, the brain cannot develop normally. Right. So you end up with a brain uh, that is only 60% of the mass of a normal brain. 
Uh, and you end up with very specific lesions in specific parts of the brain. Yeah. Uh, quite a, a couple of su surprises, for example, that the cerebellum was was quite he heavily affected. Mm. And then there are certain areas also that, that stands out. But basically, um, you end up with a brain that has much more gray matter than, than white matter. The also... Uh, with these mutations, they were not severe enough to completely kill off the litter, so they survived. And then they were able to judge some of the neurological defects yeah. in these uh, in, 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 in these um, in the offspring. And, and interestingly, anxiety, severe anxiety, was one of them. Neurological damage, uh, as assessed by twitching, mm. and and also. Um, uh, cognitive defects are uh, uh, prominent. Yeah. And in research done on omega-3s on humans, then uh, at least there are clear indications that omega-3s may be important or may be linked to depression, for example. Right. And also, for to a certain extent, to con cognitive performance. Can I go back to the structure of the LISO mm -hmm. <laughs> form? Yep. <laughs> um, you mentioned that there were 16 types of these choline-containing phospholipids. Well, actually, 69 different. Oh, sorry, <laughs> forgive, forgive me, 60. <laughs> that's correct. That is in, in, in krill oil. And that's actually a small selection, um, usually because if you do the combinatoric uh, exercise and figure out if you have 30 or so different fatty acids mm. and you have two positions to put them in, uh, you get a large number of possible variations. Um, so depending on um, the actual concentration of a specific uh, type, uh, then um, you could classify them according to prevalence. And in krill oil, um, the actual number is actually smaller than you would expect, for example, in a more variable source, because krill lives in these very cold waters, and they have a fairly... Um, narrow selection of fatty acids uh, in their fat. That's actually one of the things that makes them stand out. Um, that might be connected with them living under these harsh conditions and um, to put it into a uh, directly said, if they didn't have these polyunsaturated fatty acids, they would freeze yeah. and, f and, and fall to the bottom of the sea. I, I remember say, um, hearing something years ago that deer in, in the winter months mm. concentrated omega-3 fatty acids really? in their hooves yeah. <laughs> so that they wouldn't no, freeze so much. Well, it is. In, 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 in the ocean, you know, one might say that one effect of the omega-3s is actually being antifreeze. Uh, and in Antarctica, the, the temperatures ranges between minus 0 0.8 degrees Celsius and about 2 degrees Celsius uh, throughout the year. So there is very little variation. Um, and so they have adapted to these these conditions. Uh, and um, so we found 69 different species. There are obviously more, but then uh, the, those that we could detect. But if I count the five more most prevalent of them, then I would account for maybe more than 80% of the total mass. So it is actually a fairly narrow selection. So let's move now on to a huge question with krill oil and it's versing fish oil with this bioavailability. Now, you and I were speaking earlier. Um, I really think they're two different entities and I think there's been a lot of um, 
riding on the coattails of the plethora of research on fish oils and just saying, oh, well, let's have some of that market. But to me, they're totally... Not totally, but they, they have different actions. Can you explain a little bit about well, that, please? Of course, with regards to actions, there are areas where they overlap. And, um, and that, that should come as no surprise at all. Put it this way, um, a cat is not a little tiger, and a tiger is not a large cat. They are actually two different animals. They do share uh, a few uh, features. Mm. Of course, they are felines, yeah. both of them. Yeah. And I think this is like the particular relationship between the phospholipids and, and the triglycerides. Um, now, still, you have to keep in mind that um, they are attached to different backbones. So you have an EPA in its phospholipid form and in its triglyceride form. They actually do behave differently physicochemically. Uh, the the uh, at least the lyso uh, form of phosphatidylcholine with EPA or DHA or uh, DPA mm. um, are more water soluble. They're not really water soluble, then, but are more water mixable. Um, so they, our aqueous and internal environment can accommodate a certain amount of these. Um, while the triglycerides really are, they're water solubility is very, very limited. So our body has a, a problem in handling the triglycerides. They have to be um, organized into micelles. Uh, everyone has heard about VLDL, LDL, HDL, cholomicrons, and so forth. And these particles are actually made up of phospholipids and triglycerides. Uh, HDL has far more phospholipids than the LDL. But we question quite early if the uptake and distribution of EPA and DHA in its phospholipid versus triglycerides form are similar or if they are different. Mm. And we've done research to try to elucidate uh, that question and to come to a, some sort of a conclusion. Um, the standard paradigm of lipid uptake is that you eat it, it gets down into your stomach, there it meets lipases or phospholipases, it is chopped up uh, and then taken into the enterocyte, may, may be resynthesized, uh, then taken up into cholomicrons, and then it is dropped into lymph. And then lymph, in its place, it's dropped into vena cava, and so it meets the systemic circulation way ahead of meeting the liver. Right. Now, that is obviously true for triglycerides. But when we started to probe into this and ask, is this exactly the same for phospholipids? Then our suspicions um, were raised uh, out of a number of reasons. Um, and we had early reasons to believe that at least some of the phospholipid molecules will actually not go that route, but will go through the hepatic circulations and enter into the liver. Uh, before it goes into circulation. And that is um, a differential uptake mechanism that had, can have quite wide consequences for the fate of those two molecules. The liver is a different organ mm. if you meet it from the systemic side or if you meet it from the, um, from the gut side. Yeah. Now, um, through uh, radio labeling of, uh, through human pharmacokinetics and through radio labeling of, of um, synthetic variants of either phospholipid-bound EPA or 
triglyceride-bound EPA, we've been able to show that with a certain amount of confidence that um, certainly the triglycerides really do go through lymph mm. and a far uh, smaller proportion of the uh, phospholipid-bound EPA, for example, or DHA, will go through lymph. And we can see in when we follow this through over time, the fluxes in and out of different organs, we see clear differences. For example, uh, and this was expected, uh, many more times of EPA uh, in its triglyceride form ends up in white fat, so stored in the dipiocytes, than um, the, uh, when it is bound uh, as a phospholipid. So the, there are very clear differences. Uh, it will still take us uh, the better part of a few years, I think, mm. with even more detailed research to elucidate the whole pattern because you will have to look at just not just one side, but you have to divide the body into a number of different compartments and then elucidate the fluxes in and out of all of these. So this then leads on to the bioavailability question, which has recently been attacked. Yep. So can you explain... <laughs> All there is to know about bioavailability, because it's more than just absorption out of the gut, isn't it? I think one can be quite uh, uh, consistent about it, because bioavailability is a term that was inherited from pharma. And uh, I happen to have worked in exactly that field for years and years. And it's actually a, a concept that is un even under legal uh, restrictions, uh, because in pharma there are restrictions as exactly how to do it. But the idea is that you have two identical molecules. Uh, and the idea is that if you have two identical molecules, from, for example, from two different manufacturers, then the body doesn't know uh, from which manufacturer that molecule came. Mm. Uh, the <laughs> only difference would be in the formulation of the product. And the formulation of the product can, to a certain extent, change the uptake profile, that is, the speed, and to a certain extent, also, the extent of of the uptake. And bioavailability um, is all about extent. Uh, so it is about how much of the molecule was taken up, actually regardless of the speed or the profile or whatever. Uh, Bioequivalence yeah. takes both into account. Yeah. Now, um, for two molecules to be evaluated by bioavailability, then first of all, you need them to be identical. So that's the most fundamental deviation um, between when you apply this to EPA and DHA in its phospholipid and triglyceride form, mm. because um, they are not. Uh, and we know, we have uh, research that clearly shows that they are up, taken up uh, as different molecules, as a lysophosphatide, or as a triglyceride, or as a monoglyceride. Uh, and that dictates different fates uh, and different pathways through our bodies. Um, what about final destinations? Well, final destinations uh, will also be dependent on this. Uh, for example, as um, I pointed out, um, the final destination of much more of EPA in its triglyceride form is actually in the adipocytes. Now, in the adipocytes, they may be well preserved, but they won't do anything in the adipocytes. They actually really sit there and wait. Uh, until later, when what you see with the phospholipids, as might even be expected, it seems to be distributed to tissues more, more or less directly. Uh, and what about over a time span? Well, there is uh, EPA and DHA 
are both slow molecules. It's been, it was a huge, I have to say, um, surprise mm. when I first, when I saw my first real pharmacokinetic curves in humans. Uh, with EPA, I found that the half-life was give or take 85 to 90 hours. That means that you would need 20 to 30 days to reach steady state. Uh, so you would have to take your EPA supplement for 30 days and then you will reach the saturation level in your body mm -hmm. dictated by that dose. Then it takes another 30 days from when you stop until it's out again. That's your half life. <laughs> but anyway, also keep in mind that we, these are endogenous molecules. So you always have a pool of EPA in your body. You mm. always have a pool of DHA in your body. And one interfering problem here is that when you take it, it you might recruit or not recruit uh, those molecules from your pools. Now, DHA was so slow in humans that I was not even able to, to um, measure its elimination. Uh, so it really accumulates together with DPA, which is actually being formed from EPA. So EPA so that's your is docose acid. Yes, yeah. and DPA, and it has gotten a lot of attention lately. But DPA is being formed from D, DPA is being formed from D, uh, from EPA, mm. um, and in krill oil, krill oil contains very little DPA. Uh, but when you take Krillod, you will see DPA levels increase almost par in parallel with DHA. Anyway, the, the uh, DHA uh, molecule has a very slow elimination. And to my mind, it looks like our bodies really want to keep it. Um, and it takes, I do not know, maybe half a year, um, maybe even a year to reach steady state. In animal experiments, um, where I can do the proper experiment with, with with radio labeled uh, um, in, in, in the little rat that is much faster than a human, um, it takes me 600 hours to reach steady state with DHA. Wow. So they are very different creatures, uh, kinetic wise. Um, so to me, EPA seems to be some sort of a transient molecule. Mm. It seems to be, uh, it seems to be, ex be um, consumed. Also in the radioactivity experiments, maybe 40% of EPA ends up as CO2 in your... I was going to ask that. So do you think EPA is therefore more prone to beta oxidation as well as its actions in, uh, you know, as being an anti-inflammatory? Again. Not necessarily oxidation, but other types of use. And it is being transformed also to DPA. Keep that in mind. Yeah. But, but we do see it being excreted in, in, in air. Uh, so no doubt it is being oxidized. While DHA, only a very tiny uh, uh, fraction of DHA over the time period that we've looked at it is actually being oxidized at, or uh, is found in uh, exhaled air. Yeah, and do you think that might have to do with DHA being much more of a structural type component? It might be, but that is mere speculation at this time. Right. They are definitely different. Yeah, oh yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, for example, you see uh, large between those variations in EPA, uh, between those variations in DHA is very small if you take it every day. So talk, let's talk more about the gross bioavailability versus organ bioavailability. Well, organ bioavailability is, would be a constructed concept and it really doesn't, you know, it, it, yes, you may, you may construct such a, but I, 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 would, I would hesitate to construct even a new concept that people do not understand. 
Um, so I would just leave bioavailability with what it is and then rather talk about differential distribution because that's what it's all about. Um, uh, um, EPA and DHA doesn't do its doesn't do have its actions in the bloodstream. It it will do what it uh, does when incorporated into the membranes or when incorporated into the membranes of different organs or when transported into the brain. So in a way, it, the tissue is the issue. Mm. And well said. <laughs> we, you have to, and that's where they're different. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that there is something, anything wrong with fish oil. Uh, fish oil has its place. Uh, it is fish oil, mm. and it will do what fish oil does. And and at the same time, uh, the phospholipid form has its place, uh, and will reach organs uh, at different paces or different flux levels, and it will maybe penetrate specific. Um, organs uh, differently from from triglycerides. Tell me about. Uh, I'll play devil's advocate here. The, your recent paper sort of basically said that the the proponents of krill oil saying that it was far greater absorbed than fish oil basically got it wrong. Well, if you, what I'm doing here is that I'm pointing to that there are qualitative differences. And to my mind, I think our research and also other res others' research now really starts to uh, document that beyond reasonable doubt. Um, but if you try to reduce a qualitative different difference and even a multiple qualitative difference into a quantitative measure, then you simply get it wrong. Mm. Uh, again, uh, if you try to make the difference between a cat and a tiger, into size, then of course size is part of it, but you really you're you're not you, you lose out on on addressing the question. So tell me, therefore, what do you think the the champion uses of krill oil are or will be? Well, I pointed to brain uh, definitely. Uh, it has uh, a documented use uh, here in Australia. Arthritis, or not arthritis? I should definitely not use the word arthritis. Um, uh, I would say uh, joint discomfort is a much better. Uh, arthritis is a very specific disease, and it's even an indication on it. And it would in, it is inappropriate actually to to use the word arthritis, and it's probably also um, both. Uh, pathologically and, and physiologically wrong. Um, but that's been the... Uh, I still think, uh, there is no doubt, we have more to do with regards to clinical research. You know, I'm now talking about preclinical research or mechanistic research, and however much I like it, and however much I think it can give us v very valuable insights in, in, in where to look. The final test of everything is in the true clinical research on large enough clinical studies in humans. Mm. And that has to be done. We have such studies uh, in, um, in plan. Uh, uh, as we speak, we have uh, several, actually. And we have performed a few already. To me, what I, I see from you know, the market feedback is that krill oil has really found its place in reducing pain mm. um, already. Mm. Um, whereas in other areas, like, for instance, uh, improving the omega-3 index, mm. why it may be have shown that in a small, I think that was a clinical study, um, a pilot study, 
we're waiting for the the larger research to show a cardiovascular well, we, benefit. Well, we have we have actually we've been champions for using the omega three index, and actually that's interesting in relation to bio bioavailability, mm-hmm. because uh, single dose accumulation that's the error under the curve exercises with krill really isn't appropriate because we have this large endogenous pool. Uh, so we've been searching for some sort of available method to assess the accumulated levels of EPA and DHA. And we think that uh, the omega-3 index uh, represents such a method. It still needs to be standardized, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's actually still a problem with the, with the method. Um, and so we've been champions uh, and for that. And then... Uh, it is. There, there are a number of interesting findings. We've actually we do omega three index in all our clinical studies. So we have studies with at least several hundred individuals, and what we've found is that um, there is a linear relationship between the dose of EPA and DHA and the omega three index. Mm-hmm. There seems to be um, there seems to be um, a milligram by milligram uh, higher effect or more uh, higher increase of the omega-3 index when you take it as a phospholipid and a triglyceride. And one of the findings of our recent animal studies is exactly that uh, phospholipids are at least to a certain degree directly exchanged between blood and plasma. So that might explain why, mm. because they, don't, they then would be more available for interchange with the erythrocytes. Originally, we thought that it had to be synthesized in the megakaryocyte, but it seems that not an, a not insignificant part of the uh, omega-3s in the erythrocyte is actually coming directly from plasma. Right. So, but uh, it is, uh, we think it is a, a, a good measure. Now, it is also interesting to see in different age groups, in different um, uh, ethnic groups, uh, in different geographical groups, the distribution of the omega-3 index. And it, it actually correlates very well with what kind of food is prevalent in that population. So right. those who eat a lot of fish will have high numbers. Those who eat almost no fish at all, like in the northern part of Germany, where we made mm-hmm. uh, a couple of studies, have very low levels. And uh, we, you could easily follow the response. Actually, uh, within the company, we actually do omega-3 index competitions al- almost, <laughs> where we take Krillon and see how far we could get. Uh, uh, more for fun than anything. But yeah. one interesting aspect of the omega-3 index is athletes. And we've measured the levels of athletes because uh, Ocker happens to be the main sponsor of the Nordic ski team in Norway. Right. So we're talking about respiratory bendability of the, the red blood cells in capillaries. No, we're also talking about the fact exchange. that they seem to just burn off the omega-3s when you eat them. They need energy. So, so this at- is beta oxidation. This is the th- yes. Athletes really have a very hard time keeping up their omega three index. They need huge amount of omega threes in any form right. to lift it. Uh, we do have indications that um, it might be beneficial for them to take the phospholipid form. It seems to be better preserved, so they might achieve may achieve, but they will need more than anybody else. Mm. Uh, and then um, one might also ask, knowing the pharmacokinetics of, of, of the omega-3, one might really ask if athletes should not take it in the morning, but rather in the afternoon. 
before uh, a few hours before they go to bed. And what sort of dose are we talking about here? Oh, we're talking about, I, I would be hesitant, but we are talking about grams and grams and grams. You know, they would wow. need huge doses. Gotcha. Uh, if you're a really heavy athlete, uh, then... And can I interject there? Um, what about um, the phosphatidyl form and indeed the lysophosphatidyl form yeah. in fish as opposed well, to fish oil supplements? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, a colleague of mine... Put it this way: um, krill oil is more similar to fish than fish oil. Right. That sounds really strange, but when you eat salmon, you do eat, or if you eat seafood in general, yep. you will get a mixture of phospholipid bound and triglyceride bound, uh, um, uh, EPA and DHA, depending on the source. Uh, estimates I've, se- I've seen for salmon uh, indicates that about 40% of the EPA and DHA you eat, you get when you eat salmon, is actually in the phospholipid form. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, maybe krill is more fish than fish. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to also ask, because there's another emerging, you know, source of EPA and DHA, or at, at this stage only the DHA is licensed in Australia, but certainly the source is there, and that's the algal forms yep. of EPA and DHA. Can you comment they, on that? Yeah, the algal form, um, there are, d- depends on the algae. Uh, and also remember that krill gets its... Um, it gets its lipids from algae. It doesn't synthesize it itself. Mm-hmm. Now, the algae in the southern oceans are quite special, uh, and krill is quite picky about what kind of algae They're it is. They're not the same algae as in no. the Hawaiian no, islands. No, no. They are, th- these are very special algaes. There are four or five identified uh, what is, I would call their staple food. Mm-hmm. They're so-called pico and nanoalgae. 20 micrometers across and krill actually filters them out of the water so in one way you could say that krill is just another way of harvesting algae Mm. Um, but and then krill also additionally eats during bloom uh, dinoflagellates and and kiesel algae Um, now the algae forms they do have and there are reports in the literature they do have polar lipids but then there are different polar lipids they're not phospholipids most of them and the analysis as i've seen um, in algae forms then yes they do contain polar lipids they're not uh, phospholipids and more importantly the fatty acid seems mostly to be in its triglyceride form so while they contain a mixture of triglycerides and polar lipids, uh, the EPA and DHA mainly sits on the triglyceride. And, and it, okay, so I'm going to postulate here. <laughs> uh, do you think maybe that the, the reason that the algae have the storage form mm-hmm. uh, of the EPA and DHA is that they need it for energy and the antifreeze to remain because they're such small well, they, organisms, they, their volume Algae will surface. store this in huge globlets yeah. inside, and so there are droplets yeah. of triglycerides. Because so, their volume per surface well, uh, area is with, greater. With, with regards to in the southern oceans, there are algae that also seems to store them in, in, in phospholipid form. Yeah. And Japanese research showed that many, many years ago, actually quite elegant research, uh, I, I, I think one needs to be aware of that um, uh, the synthesis of these lipids in algae seems to be different by their geographical regions, at right. least with temperature. Right. So you typically find these um, the phospholipids forms in the cold waters, uh, so very far north or very far south. Yeah. 
Um, uh, and again, the, I've seen kinetic profiles uh, from uh, algae products, uh, and they are very similar to the triglyceride profiles. So uh, you can actually, if you see the kinetic profiles, mm. the, that is the plasma profile over time, for, for, you can actually see if it is a phospholipid or a triglyceride. It, it, it's, it's quite characteristic. Tell me about uh, fishing practices, because this a big issue with uh, many practitioners is that we're stealing whale food, and that it's an unsustainable source. Yeah, this is uh, when we started our operations way back in two thousand and three. Um, Norway has a certain reputation, I have to say. We were one of the most aggressive nations in the Southern Oceans in whaling. Uh, no doubt about that. Mm. Um, we've also had fishing practices in our own home waters that were less than stellar. Um, but a lot has changed in that industry. Um, we went through a transitional period where fisheries in Norwegian water became more and more regulated. Uh, and the fishermen realized, uh, after many, many years, mm. how advantageous that was. And, for example, today, both the main fisheries in Norwegian waters, that is in the Norwegian Sea as well as in the Barents Sea, are very well kept. And we have the largest catches ever. So we have the largest catches of herring, uh, chaplain, uh, and not to speak about cod that we've had in uh, maybe a century. Wow. Uh, so everybody have re has realized by now that, that preservation is necessary mm. and that you have to shut down the fisheries when, uh, when you have to shut them down. Typically, you could take out about 20% of a fish population uh, and still be okay. So that's kind of the regrowth rate, and it's very well known for fish. With krill, we do not know the regrowth rate. We don't even know for sure the the uh, total population, other than it is large. Mm. Uh, it might be much larger than we think. Uh, I don't think it is smaller than the assessments that we have. And there are many reasons for that. Now, when we set out, we realized that we are going to operate in these very delicate waters, and that any deviation of good behavior would um, be inadmissible. Um, I have to say, we're not doing that to be Florence Nightingale. You know, we do this uh, out of own interest. Mm, you know, it yeah. is, if we ruin the resource... Sustainable business. Uh, definitely. <laughs> um, so we early on went into discussions with World Wildlife Fund. Um, and we've also been in discussions with the NGOs. And we asked them basically, how, how, how can we do this? Yeah. Uh, now, in Antarctica, there is actually a, a fairly efficient uh, um, regulation already through Camelar, uh, which actually has its headquarters in Tasmania. Uh, Camelar is the organization that takes care of all fisheries uh, or all marine resources in Antarctica. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a big success. Um, so all fisheries in Antarctica for years and years now has been followed by this. The organization is run by, um, by uh, unanimous uh, acceptance yep. of, of the principles and the quotas. The quotas has been set very restrictively in what we call Area 48, where the estimated amount is 60 million, uh, which is then conservative. And that's 60 million... Tons. Tons. Yes. Uh, you are, we are allowed the 
the allowable catch is 6 million tons. But then there is what is called the precautionary quota, which is 600,000 tons or 650,000 tons. What that means is that if we ever reach 650,000 tons, uh, then the whole quota, the whole fish will have to be reevaluated. Mm-hmm. At present, the, the catch is around 250,000 tons, uh, which is a fraction of, of the amount there. Now, we achieved MSC certification for our operations. That is nothing that is set in stone. Uh, it has to be re-certified every two years, I think. I, yep. Uh, um, but, um, and there is an assessment uh, of our practices, also with regards to bycatch. Uh, I was going to go into this next, because Acobiomarine is doing something quite unique in their fishing practices. That's true. But um, so we, we are, um, we have operated in accordance with, with our MSC certification. Uh, we, were, we were recently re, uh, recertified with a higher score than we had in our original score. And we've had an independent party also look at if the krill fishery is in the specific area where they happen, because mm-hmm. it's, not a, it's not a global distribution. There mm-hmm. are actually yeah, specific clumps. area catches. The assessment was that there was no detectable influence on any other life forms in the area from our fisheries. And that includes penguins? Penguins, seals, seals. whales. Um, that's the, the main predators of, of krill. And I just wanted to put that into perspective about the, uh, the amount of the bycatch. 60 million tonnes is uh, the sort of rough equivalent of 45 million cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One and a half tonnes <laughs> per car. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. So, and, and again, the assessments here are, of course, um, under constant evaluation. Arcur has um, joined forces with the University of Tasmania, mm-hmm. uh, and um, we actually, um, uh, the University of Tasmania with Arcur as the industrial partner has gotten a link grant, and we are, as we speak, we've started our project. It is going to be for three years, and um, where we actually use our boats as a platform for assessment of uh, krill biology. And then we're looking at all sorts of parameters, uh, that is uh, pollution, but also uh, hopefully we will be able to address uh, some of the questions regards the total population and the fluxes in population and so forth. What is nice about this is that while research vessels might go there a few weeks a year at maximum, mm. we have two boats that stay out there for 10 months a year. So oh, I wow. can have a sample every day, or I can have a sample very many t- times a day. Wow. And uh, we to know... Test for fluxes in populations. Yes, so we are, we are looking into a number of, or we'll look into a number of different factors based on this sampling. And then as this... Uh, 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 develops, then we will see if there is other things we can do uh, based on the fact that our ships are down there. Tell me about the actual fishing um, equipment that you developed, because it's quite unique. Fishing krill is not easy. Uh, I think I have a background in, in, in the fisheries on, in, 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 on the west coast of Norway, mm. uh, or at least my family have. So, um, And um, 
I think the krill fisheries is among maybe the most difficult fisheries ever taken on. Mm. Uh, the main problem is that the creature is so small. Uh, if it had been any smaller, you couldn't do it. Mm. So krill is really at the sweet spot yeah. of catching um, catching anything uh, down there. Um, so you need to drag a net behind you. That's what you do when you're trolling. Mm. If you hive the troll through the waters, that's the conventional technique. Then you take the troll through the waters where you have other forms of life. Uh, so the risk of bycatch increases. Now there are other ways of preventing bycatch. We keep grids in front of the of the uh, of the trolls, and by now that uh, has been refined to such a level that we have virtually no bycatch at all. Um, so, but keeping the troll down there, then we actually pump the tr the krill on board on a continuous basis. Mm. So it gets more or less live on board. Mm. It's being pumped from down there. Uh, we met, may get down to several hundred meters, or we may uh, be higher in the water, depending on where the krill uh, is. Mm. Now, in the middle of a krill steam, you will not find much else. Uh, that's probably why they stand, they gather in all yeah. these schools, it's yeah. to protect themselves it's from like a the fish predators. Yeah. 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 So uh, then also keep in mind that Antarctica is really quite dominated by krill at this time. There isn't that much fish. Huh? Um, so, for example, we do never catch fish or almost never catch fish uh, in our trawls. Uh, that is enough to supply our, our, even a meal for our, for our crew. So we have to transport frozen fish from, <laughs> from Uruguay uh, for, for, for feeding our crew fish. Yeah. What about the, you know, it's quite an emotive area. What about um, penguin seals? We again, uh, we uh, we do not have bycatch of penguins or seals, uh, and remember, um, we have an independent uh, observer on board uh, that is completely independent of Aqua Biomarine and observes all our practices and reports back to actually an organisation in London. Um, and I, two years ago, I was told that the total amount of bycatch for that whole season would fit in a standard refrigerator. So that was pretty wow. much it. Tell me about where the future of krill oil is leading. What's the, where's, the, where's the exciting research? The exciting research are in many areas. Uh, I, I, you know, I think in larger clinical studies, definitely, and then we're speaking at least hundreds and maybe thousands. Uh, I also think uh, it is going to be very exciting to run more long-term studies. Mm. Uh, for a year, for two years, yeah. Uh, if budgets a, will a allow gissy, me, a gissy krill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but then, of course, uh, I'm very excited about the uh, the new findings with regards to the central nervous system, and I think the the new breakthroughs uh, is going to be in that area mainly. Uh, uh, the, our brain, um, the fatty mass in the prefrontal cortex, uh, uh, if I'm not wrong, as much as 30% of the fatty mass is actually DHA. Right. DHA is a very special fatty acid. Uh, I would like to mention again that DHA in all its forms are very special molecules that has functional uh, significance for our bodies. Um, they're not there to be eaten. Yeah. And the uptake and distribution we see, the slow uptake, the slow distribution, to me, from a physiological point of view, is all about keeping them. 
uh, not burning them off, not putting them into the furnace, so to say. Yeah. Um, so there was some really good research done by a professor in Australia, Professor Peter McClellan of mm-hmm. Wollongong University, and he was looking at DHA about membrane. Um, forgive me, uh, uh, contract, heart contractility yep. um, and nerve conduction. Mm-hmm. And he found like uh, the DHA had particular actions in, say, preventing AF, atrial fibrillation in heart, whereas uh, Maria McCready's of Flinders Medical Centre has done work with postnatal depression mm-hmm. and finding that DHA really didn't affect any, any indices of postnatal depression mm-hmm. and... Um, I'm not sure if she's there for supporting EPA, but others, I think, support EPA as the more of the anti-inflammatory action. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on where you think the differences in actions of EPA and DHA are? The structural role of DHA in the brain is undisputed. Mm -hmm. uh, And and, uh, Michael Crawford, for example, pointed out that um, two stretches of DHA. DHA is a coplanar molecule. Uh, EPA actually is almost forming a circle. Um, so they are quite different from mm. a structural point of view. Mm. You know, this little difference makes a difference. Mm. Um, but two stretches of DHA is enough to span the whole membrane. So it may actually uh, function as an uh, electron tunnel in the membrane, which is a very interesting concept. Mm. And it might be that they are really, really important for the for the uh, neurons. Yeah, nerve conduction. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and I think there is lots of research to be to be done there. With regards to the heart, that's really quite interesting. Um, there is, remember, in the original correlations of the omega-3 index in health was sudden cardiac death in health. And it's always been puzzling to me that it is exactly sudden cardiac death. And there is a strong correlation there. Um, now, remember also that the conduction system in the heart are specialized muscle cells, uh, the so-called Hisperkinia system. Um, and it's not really an anatomical uh, um, division, but they are specialized muscle cells with so-called tight junctions. To me, it seems uh, a valid question to ask if accumulation of DHA, because it is, you find a lot of DHA in the heart. If it is accumulation of DHA in specific parts of the heart, uh-huh. that might be interesting. And then I'm pointing to the conduction system. Right. Um, uh, so we're talking about the Purkinje fibers. Yeah. Yeah? That, that's the, but the, no, the His Purkinje system in the heart is not to be confused with the Purkinje fibers right. in the brain. Right, right. You know, it's the same person who did the, the, the primary staining of ah, this. Ah, right. So, right, but right. The His Purkinje system is basically the conduction system that creates a coordinated. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it might be. And again, this is mere speculation at this stage. We are actually looking, we, we are heading in this direction also. But it might be that DHA is of particular importance mm. for the isolation of the conduction so that you do not have conduction overflow. Right. So there might be a more direct link between uh, sudden cardiac death, yeah. which is usually linked to, uh, to arrhythmia. Yeah. And... DHA than we actually thought. We're talking about refractory periods here? We are talking about that, and we are also talking about leakage uh, out of the conduction system ah. and to prevent ectopic focus. Right, right. 
So, but that is um, that is for the future. Yeah. Uh, exciting questions asked. No, no, no answers yet. Mm. And uh, there are ways of addressing this, though. Um, so, just as a wrap up, Neil, because I could talk to you for hours. Can <laughs> just keep going. Practical doses for various conditions um, that, that you've seen from experience and indeed from clinical trials. And, and can I point out, by the way, that I had no idea that there was over like hundreds. I thought it was only a small pilot trial with regards to the omega-3 index. Oh no, there are, oh, no, no. The omega-3 index have, have far more uh, weight with, behind with it. With krill? Also with krill. We right. have several hundreds uh, in, our, in our stores. Um, um, we may not have published all of that. That's right. a different story. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Um, well, actually, we have one study uh, that are going to be published with several hundreds. Uh, anyway, um, the dose is always difficult because it is obviously individual. Uh, if you eat a lot of seafood, you don't need that much of a uh, supplementation. If you eat enough seafood, you don't need anything at all. Yep. Then uh, I know that I shouldn't say this, but. Uh, maybe the best way of taking these is still by eating uh, fish and seafood. Absolutely. So, if only uh, we would and enjoy it socially. <laughs> exactly. And, and uh, I, I hardly think that as I will ever, ever gather around a <laughs> krill capsule no, and have a social meal. I, I fully advocate the, but, the, social, the Mediterranean diet with the social interaction as a preventative heart. But, um, uh, so heart anything from, anything from, from 500 milligrams and upwards, um, as I said, if you're a really heavy athlete, you would need a lot. Um, uh, for the majority, uh, and I would be careful, I'm, I'm not a physician, so I would be very careful about the exact dosing for different conditions, sure. but as a general, uh, uh, 500 uh, and upwards, and in Australia I know many, or majority people are taking maybe a gram, two capsules a day, yep. some are taking three capsules a day, some are taking four capsules a day. Yep. Depends on your lifestyle. And it depends on your other food. Right. So if I can then sort of stratify that for a fish-eating individual who might have some, and let's call it mus- uh, joint discomfort, yep. um, they would take maybe 1,000 or 1,500. And yet if somebody was not or did not have an intake of food-based omega-3 fatty acids, they would EPA and DHA, then obviously they're going to yeah. need more. And you see this when you look at the omega-3 index. But again, dosage is a sensitive area because we are entering into giving uh, clinical advice. And uh, at least in my position, I'm trained as a pharmacist and I'm very careful about giving uh, clinical advice. Yeah. Uh, I do not feel qualified to do that. Um, although I've been calculating doses of pharmaceuticals for, for many, many years, but that's a different story. But um, what I have learned, though, is that it is individual. Um, but you're right. Uh, that sounds sounds like a, a good middle ground. Yeah. Um, be aware of, though, that it has to be certain kinds of fish. You know, yeah. not all fish contains a lot of omega-3s. Yeah. Only fishes from cold waters and particular kinds of fishes that do accumulate omega-3s, like herring, uh, tuna, uh, salmon, some mussels, salmon. Salmon is almost exclusively farmed these days, so that mm -hmm. will depend on the feet. Yes, now, which and, and I then, am horribly sad to say that um, I understand that it's soy. 
yes, it is. And actually, uh, one of the main uses of our krill products is actually for, aqua, for, for aquaculture. So that's another way of taking krill oil is when you eat salmon that has, <laughs> that has had uh, krill meal. So the people who advocate salmon as a healthy food choice are actually <laughs> eating... Well, to a certain degree, and, and, uh, and believe me, that's actually a completely different story. But um, following the health of salmon looking at what happens to salmon that eat soya and see what kind of diseases they suffer from, inflammatory diseases, muscle inflammation, sudden cardiac death, and then see how you can alleviate some of that by, by mixing uh, at least a minimal proportion of marine protein and fat, like from krill oil, yeah. uh, is quite interesting in itself. And it's actually a type of animal experiment that we are doing you know, every day because a large proportion of what we catch uh, the marine, val very valuable marine proteins are being used in aquaculture and hopefully uh, will provide more healthy salmon. So uh, Dr. Nils Holm, thank you so much for taking me through the benefits of krill oil and its place in the market and place indeed in human health and where the future is going to lead us. I really, really found that very interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. It's my favourite subject. <laughs> This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm -hmm.